This is Anthems. Hello, I'm S.L. Grange. My pronouns are they or she. I'm a poet and theatre maker. Your word of the day is extempore, from the Latin ex, meaning out or out of or outside, and tempus, meaning time. I'm recording this in the basement of the National Archives on Thursday the 12th of May at 11.25am, amid stacks of boxes of documents that trace the state's activities for over a thousand years. Timothy Morton says that objects emit time, and these boxes of dust, soot, ink, parchment and paper emit so much time that sometimes it's like I can barely breathe. My fingertips are grimy from searching through them. I sneeze a lot. And at the end of the day, my eyeballs ache from deciphering ancient handwriting and even older legal structures. Everything here is done by the book, because this is the book. In one sense, it's an archive of refusal, the state labouring to tame the unexpected or unruly and file wildness into some kind of order or control. It is the traces of legal procedures that force deviancy and resistance firmly into line, disciplined and chastened. You could say it is an attempt to make time run in a straight line, a march forwards. History has also been called progress, but we have to ask for whom. Many of the lives lost in these boxes felt history happening to them as disruption, violence or oppression. I'm recording this on the foreshore of the Thames at high tide, two days into the moon's first quarter, where a different kind of archive washes in the river. It's a chaotic archive of waste and loss, things discarded or dropped. Things on the margins of daily life have been given to or taken by the river for 2,000 years. If you look down at low tide, standing on the foreshore, you're looking back in time. Time runs tidily here, a give and take a back and forth. In the 16th century, clocks were still mostly attached to churches and watches a new invention only available to the very rich. People measured time differently. The movement of the sun, religious services, hunger. An hour of daylight in the summer was three times longer than an hour of daylight in the winter. If you live by the Thames, you measure time in tides. If you live with ghosts, you don't measure time, you step outside it altogether. I'm recording this in the snug of the George Inn on the day before St Pancras Day, in the hour before Sext. For me, this place holds another archive, one that stores more in my own body partly because I've been coming here for a pint off and on for 20-odd years, and partly because people have been getting drunk on this site for well over 400 years. There's an archive of unruliness soaked into the wonky timbers. It's also one of the places I come to meet Mary Frith, with whom I am in love. Mary and I are working on a project together. 
It's in every sense an extempore relationship, because Mary has been dead for 363 years. The pub Mary knew was destroyed by fire and rebuilt in 1676, but this rebuild feels like a good compromise. It's a space that makes sense to us both, and the rest of Mary's London has also gone up in flames or down in bombs. Like everything about Mary's life, only the merest traces remain. I'm recording this on February 12th, 1611. Where are we going, Mary Frith? White sheets lifting in the February wind, winding round our knees and ankles, the rough wood of the scaffold snagging against the calluses of our palms. The crowd lift our feet one by one up the steps, as if our bare souls belonged to their cupped hands. Priests know how to whip and split us, scolding the shame on with holy water flung from a distance. But they don't know where we're going, our scars fresh blistered and our mouths wet with penitence. We slip our feet through woollen breeches, tie our points up neat as a Sunday prayer, pit-pat. Oh, and we will chop our hair clean off at the chin, our breasts bound in white sheets, winding. Mary Frith, also known as Mal Cutpurse, Mary Markham or Mary Thrift, was born sometime around 1589 in London, and by 1608 had a reputation for being mad, bad and wearing the wrong clothes, specifically men's clothes. Mary played the lute and seems to have made a living, or at least a name for themselves, by busking round the taverns of Bankside, smoking a pipe, taking the piss out of the lads, singing songs. A drag king, essentially. Mary's celebrity, or infamy, was cemented when two men called Thomas, Middleton and Decker, wrote a play about Mary called The Roaring Girl. The epilogue that's come down to us promises the real-life Mary will perform on the stage of the Fortune Theatre in person, we know this happened because Mary gets hauled before the church courts, a kind of morality police force at the time, for a whole litany of misdemeanours including blaspheming, drunkenness, staying out late and performing at the fortune, in a man's apparel and in her boots and with a sword by her side. She told the company their present that she thought many of them were of the opinion that she was a man, but if any of them would come to her lodging, they should find that she's a woman, and some other immodest and lascivious speeches she also used at that time, and also sat there upon the stage in the public view of all the people there present in man's apparel, and played upon her lute and sang a song. In Mary's lifetime, extempore was the name for unplanned, unscripted performance, what we would call improvisation. Mary's performance, I think, reads like something improvised. Mary lives outside time in other ways too. There's no birth date for Mary. A biography claiming to be written by Mary was published two years after Mary died and gives an age at death that doesn't match the birth year proposed in the same book. Mary had at least three aliases, had a fighting bear named after them, and was represented on stage in at least two different plays and very possibly a third by boy players. Mary smoked tobacco, an unacceptably male behaviour, wore men's apparel, thus claiming a male body, and the nickname Mal Cutpurse gives Mary both cunt and testicles in the slang of the time. So Mary has many bodies, and all those bodies swirl around unanchored in the temporal tides. There are no straight lines here. 
Mary could have been trans or non-binary or butch or a good showwoman or something else entirely that we don't even know how to name. Mary is the smoke from the pipe and the burning tobacco and the pipe and the smoker. I'm recording this on Mary Frith tastes tobacco. Dry clay against your lips, my love, your lips dry clay and a thin hole, and a little fire in the bowl, my love, the long stem in your warm fingers, and the drawing in, my love, the drawing in of breath and dust and an old kiss, the holding on for a second too long, questions born in the space before you sigh the loss, the longing out, as grey air, as grey flesh, as grey clay, and kindle amber in the bowl again. The fire, my love, kindle the fire again. I know Mary's home for a time at least was across the road from the George, so this is one place I sit outside time, or in multiple times, and try to hold a kind of conversation. Sometimes other living people join me in that conversation, and other ghosts turn up too. An extemporary process allows for unplanned guests to meander in and feel welcome, there are no deadlines when you work with the dead. In the archives, I sit with letters and notes and scraps of paper carrying the traces of 400-year-old conversations and invite the dead into my body for a while. We work extempore together, making space and giving voice to the lost souls of the state archive. We meet on the page as if it's a stage, improvising on this site our bodies share, their hands ghosting in mine a body hold of invisible intimacy. I recommend you try it next time you're standing near some history. Take a slow breath in, let yourself go, make some room and find out who steps out of time to meet you there. On the riverbank at low tide, often with artist E.M. Parry, I scout for the pipe shards and pins dropped by other ghosts, the unnamed everyday citizens of the past, like a kind of memorial in action. I hold open the possibility that many of them would have been queer, even if no one else knew it, even if they didn't have the words I have to name themselves. I give them those words if they want them, and I try to listen to what they give me in return. Our queer ancestors and transcestors might not have left names and addresses behind, but that doesn't mean they didn't exist. They're still at home to visitors if you know what time to turn up and knock. History is a story. It is made of and in time, every time anyone tells it. It lives in the ear of the beholder, if you will. It's time to tell some more of the lost stories. We might not have the boxes full of facts, but we're queer, so we're good improvisers. We make our stories up as we go along. We don't obey the straight lines. The unruly queer dead are waiting to have a conversation with us, something improvised, which a real conversation has to be. Something that changes us, Something that doesn't fit them neatly into boxes. Something that allows them to stay wild, to carry on being weeds in the cracks of institutional walls. We don't need to pin them down, script them, decide how they fit into our tick box categories. History does us as much as we do it. We are all extemporary. I'm recording this at some time unknown. And you, me, I. Place your syllables in my mouth my body into the snug, hold my palm to the breath-warm edge of the flame. After a drink together let us go out in our bombast bellies, dancing, whet our daggers, wind lacing points around our little fingers. 
Wink one eye at the thatched roofs, walk down all the dark alleys we can find, calling boo to Winchester geese. In archives of embankment mud, pipe stems washing endlessly, this is how I find you. This is how I learn to hold you, and you me. Four hundred years of walking towards each other across a familiar room. Touch palms, meet eyes, leave more than X. Extempore, adverb, offhand, in accordance with the needs of the moment, out of time, unplanned, improvised. 